I'm going to hand over to Quincy for the Bible reading. So we're going to go from John chapter 12 and verse 20. Did I get that one right? John chapter 12, verse 20. So we get that open in your Bibles if you're at home and you can see that Bible on the bookshelf over there. Why don't you jump up and grab that? Or you can see it on the coffee table or right next to you. I'll give you a moment or two to get that open. It's going to be John's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Quincy's going to read that and then after that, Mark's going to get up and bring that word to us. So over to Quince. John 12, 20 through 28. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Thank you, Quincy. Look, I just want to say what a great joy it is to be here. Thank you so, so much, James, for inviting me. And, um, and it's just great to have fellowship with you. I, I must admit, and I, I guess James is the same, I've preached in all sorts of different ways over the last year. Um, but last Sunday I was allowed to preach to a real congregation at Battisford and, and then again this Sunday. It's so nice to see real people's faces again. And, and if you feel you want to show me how you feel, just pull your mask down and put it up again. I really won't mind at all. Um, I want to speak from this, this passage and, and what, what I've entitled my message is The Genuine Celebrity for Obvious Reasons. I think it's, it's fair to say that we live in a celebrity culture, don't we? And, and so much, so much um, emphasis is put on what celebrities have said. Um, James just mentioned the royal family, and you remember a while ago, those two celebrities of the royal family, Meghan Markle and Harry, um, were, were interviewed, and, and what they said seemed to carry so much weight. It seems as though whatever we're going through, what celebrities have to say carry more weight than what experts have to say. Just along those lines, I did notice, I don't know if any of you saw uh, the YouTube clip that, uh, of Boris Johnson sanking churches during the lockdown. Did any of you see that? My goodness me, that was amazing. He actually said that... Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, not just at Easter, but throughout the rest of the year. And, and Rachel and I watched it, and we thought, no, it's somebody pretending to be Boris Johnson. But that was amazing. I mean, that, that, you never would have imagined that. But that's just by the way. The greatest celebrity is Jesus. And I feel uncomfortable calling him a celebrity. Because he really is so much more than that. But in this passage, it seems as though he has become a celebrity in the minds of so many people. 
It's just after the triumphal entry. And in verse 19 of chapter 20, we read, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. People were following him. They, they, were, they wanted to see him. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to be seen with him. The crowd wanted him to be king. Clearly, that's what they said. You know, they felt this was it. The Messiah has come. We want to, we want to have him as our king. The, the, you can imagine the mood of his followers, of the disciples. It was buoyant. It was excited. For the last three years, they'd been through so much with him. And now they've come to this point where everybody, it seemed, was, was wanting to elevate this man. And the disciples must have been full of expectancy. And we read about these Greeks who wanted to see him. And it's quite interesting, as John records this for us, because the Greeks wanted to see Jesus, but they didn't go directly to Jesus. It seems as though they went through his agents. That's what made me think about a celebrity here. They went to Philip, and Philip went to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went to Jesus and said, we've got some guys here who want to see Jesus. And when we read the little word there, the, the little phrase, see Jesus, I don't think they wanted to go along and, and just simply see him and take a selfie with him or maybe get his autograph. It was far more than that. They realized that there was something incredibly special about Jesus and they wanted to benefit from him. There was no one else like him and what he gave and and they'd seen the change in people's lives and how they'd been affected those who'd spent time with Jesus and so they wanted to see Jesus for that Jesus response to the Greeks wanted to see him or rather Jesus response to this whole popularity was saying this the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified you imagine what his followers felt when he, had, when he said that? They must have been full of expectancy. This is it. This is what we've all been working towards. It must have further fueled their whole sense of, exci- of excitement and expectancy. You could imagine at this point, a celebrity would say, this is my big break. This is what I've been working towards. So what was Jesus' big break? How would he be glorified? And my first point is simply that. Jesus would be glorified through his death. Jesus had demonstrated his power over death already. So a lot of his popularity here was as a result of, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, we read about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and so people, had, had, it was close to Jerusalem, they, they knew what had gone on and so on. And, and Jesus had demonstrated his authority over death itself. But all the way through the last three years of Jesus' life, through his ministry, he demonstrated his authority in so many ways. Over nature. He would speak to a storm, to a raging sea, be still, and the storm would go quiet, the sea would go still. 
He demonstrated his authority over sickness. When he went to individuals and simply spoke to them and they were healed. Or over demons. Those who were affected by by possession of demons and, and he would cast out these demons. He demonstrated his authority over people and he continues to do that, of course. When he said to the disciples, follow me. And they just left everything and followed him. And he continues to do that with people. The Greeks hoped that by seeing Jesus, he would do, he would impart to them some instant benefit. If they could just simply go and see him and talk to him, he would somehow sort out the issues and problems in their lives. And it made me think, for so many people, that's what they want. That's what we want. We want Jesus to do something. We want him to get rid of COVID. We want him to bring world peace. We maybe want him to heal our loved ones, to bring some kind of financial stability. There's all sorts of things that we want Jesus to do. And many people dismiss Jesus because of his seeming inactivity. He doesn't seem to do those things. Why did he let my grandmother die? Why did he let my child go through so much suffering? Why did he cause me to lose my job? Why didn't he step in and make everything right? I'm not going to follow a man who is so who claims to be so all-powerful and yet who seems to be so inactive. That's what the mockers said when Jesus hung on the cross. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Ever since then, people have said just the same. Why would anybody believe or follow a man who was defeated and executed? You know, Jesus' analogy in, in, in verse 23 or verse 24, about unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That analogy I understand very much as a farmer. It's no good leaving the seed in the store. I have to get it and put it in the ground for it to produce a crop. And that seed that you plant in the ground has to die. It disappears and from that death, life comes and a harvest comes Jesus taught that he had to die if many seeds or if a harvest was to come and that was how he was glorified those Greeks that came to him were part of those many seeds they were part of that harvest In a sense, the fact that Greeks, non-Jews, were coming to him just fulfilled what was said about him in the Old Testament. That the, the gospel, the message of salvation, wouldn't be restricted to the Jewish people, but it would go to others. And we are part of those others now. 
Paul later on in the New Testament, we read of him explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Jesus was glorified through his death and resurrection. And we can never gain any benefit from Jesus apart from that death and resurrection. We need, we really need a substitute. And only the blameless Son of God could be that substitute. Jesus was glorified, or maybe we could use another word, he was revealed through his death and resurrection. What he was really like was made known when he died on the cross. When we saw Jesus, when we imagine, when we see Jesus hanging there on the cross, we see the heart of God displayed. God is truly revealed. He is glorified through the death of Jesus on the cross. And my appeal to you is to come to him and accept his offer of forgiveness if you haven't already done so. If you are one of those who look to Jesus and say, if Jesus is so powerful, why hasn't he intervened in my life? I appeal you to see the way Jesus wants to intervene in dealing with your sin is the greatest way imaginable. And his death was necessary to make that possible. You could say, in a sense, this was Jesus' big break. But it can also be our big break. As we turn to him and take hold of his offer of salvation because of his death and resurrection, then we can know forgiveness. But also in this passage, in verse 25, we read, only through our death can we gain life. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I think it's fair to say that that verse is quite misunderstood. Let me tell you how to catch a monkey. I was told this when I was a young boy. If you make a see-through box, so let's say we use Perspex, and you put something that a monkey really likes inside that box... And then you cut a hole in the perspex just big enough for the monkey to get his hand through. The monkey will come along. He'll get hold of that prize, whether it's a banana or whatever it is, and he'll try and draw it out of the box and he won't get it out because his hand won't fit through the hole because he's holding on to the prize. And only if he lets go of the prize can he get away. If he doesn't let go of the prize, then the one who wants to catch the monkey, well, he's easy prey, isn't he? He can get him. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you want eternal life, you have to be willing to let go of what you prize most here. He uses some strong words here, loving life and hating life. That seems very strong, doesn't it? But of course, if those things that we hold on tightly to are keeping us from eternal life, then we have to hate them 
we have to make a decision to let go so that we can enjoy the freedom that Jesus has for us. The prize in our celebrity culture is very often the very thing that is keeping many people out of heaven. Which has to do with, with me and my own comfort and, and my own success. There are ways in which we can hold on tight to our peril. The first one is we can hold on to what is wrong. The things we know full well are contrary to God's will. I wonder what sort of things you might be holding on to that you know are wrong. You know those things or that thing is just too precious for you to let go of. Maybe you're a businessman or woman. Maybe there are some business dealings that you know are wrong. Maybe they border on fraud. Maybe that's to do with tax evasion. Maybe it's just to do with not being concerned about the, the competitor and wanting to put him out of business. But you want to be successful in business. And so you're going to hold on to that. And it's keeping you out of God's kingdom. Maybe it's that secret sexual relationship that you've got. Someone that your wife or husband knows nothing about. And you're not prepared to let that go. And that very thing is keeping you out of God's kingdom. Maybe it's what you're like when other people can't see you, especially those at church. When you're with your work buddies and you're laughing about the things that you know no one else or people at church certainly wouldn't agree with. You're living a double life. Maybe that double life has to do with what you're like in secret when no one else can see. You know it's wrong, but no one else can see you. God can see you. And holding on to that means that you miss out on what God really wants to give. But then we can also hold on to what is good. It's possible for good things to prevent us from enjoying eternal life. What got the monkey in the trub into trouble wasn't the prize, but the fact that he was unwilling to let go of it. There are good things like our careers. Wealth, even our families, can become a hindrance if we allow them to take the place that God should take in our lives. Where do you go to when you've got nothing else to think about? Where do your thoughts go to? Maybe that's where your real God, your real idol, your real prize is. We must, be let, we must be willing to let go and hand everything over to God. But then we can also hold on to our own rightness. The Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. That's a bitter pill to swallow if you consider yourself 
a good person. But you know, unless we're willing to die, that's what Jesus says, unless we're willing to accept that there is nothing in us that would ever make us acceptable to God, that however hard we try, we're never going to reach that standard of perfection that God demands. And so we must die to our own efforts and abilities. We must die to our own rightness and come before God. You know, Christian and Pilgrim's progress. I often think about him. When I was a, a pastor at Mickfield, once a month in the Sunday morning, the children would all come and, and sit on a sofa with me down the front and we'd read a story. We did Pilgrim's Progress with them. And the, the image of Christian, who was so lauded by so many, going up towards that cross on his back was a heavy burden. Many people would have looked at Christian. In fact, they did and said, what's the matter with you? You're better than most. And yet Christian realized there was that heavy burden that only Jesus could take away from him. Unless we die, then we can't know the freedom that Jesus wants to bring. But then finally, being a Christian in verse 26 is more than. Look at verse 26. Whoever follows me, whoever serves me rather, must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. I think it's true to say, and this is a very sad fact, that being a Christian is often treated simply as a lifestyle choice. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people understand that standing up as a Christian means that you invite all kinds of ridicule and criticism. But there is also a danger of, of well, I, I'm just going to join that trendy Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church and, and, and I'm going to become part of that wonderful, warm, welcoming group of people. And that's going to be my, my new identity. That's going to be my lifestyle. Jesus in here says, being a Christian is much, much more than that. He spoke about these sort of failures in his um, uh, parable of the sower. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. By saying that, Jesus says there's more to it than just choosing a lifestyle. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I remember years ago when um, we, were, we were really struggling at Mickfield. We, we, we just never felt as though anybody was coming along. And a young man literally turned up on our doorstep. 
He lived just down in the village. And, and he wanted to come in and he wanted to talk about what Christianity was. And, and that night, he gave his heart to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And it was, it was just, wow, what is happening here? This is so exciting. And this young man went on to be baptized, not at Mickfield, at another church. But, oh, wow, we were so thrilled about this. And everything went quiet. And I heard that young man had been in conversation with somebody on the bus. And he said, ah, now that's all a load of old rubbish. You see, it seemed to him as though Christianity as a lifestyle would would answer all his problems. But when real life hit, then he gave up and walked away. Rather, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's repeated in the three Gospels and it's repeated here. And when Jesus talks about taking up his cross, it's just ahead of the fact that he would take up his own cross. And as people thought back to what he said and began to understand understand what he meant... And they realize that being a Christian is so much more than that. Celebrity culture is all about me. A real Christian lets go of me and follows Jesus wherever he takes them. And that's hard. We talk of God being a God of love which he is he is a God of perfect love and we think that somehow because he's a God of love we're going to experience an easy life and he's going to take away all our difficulties but the very fact that he is a God of love means that he will take us through those difficulties so that we can become more like Jesus to be a Christian and to truly follow Jesus requires a very heavy price to pay. But the upside, and Jesus puts it, says it here in verse 24, or verse 26 rather, my father will honour the one who serves me. You know, in John 14 and verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my commandments, and my father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our home with him. My friend, do you know that this morning? Do you know God the Father and God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, living in you? Those times, those times when we know his, his presence most, his presence what I read to Rachel this morning. It's when the cross becomes heaviest. There's a price to following Jesus. When we pay that price especially, is when we feel the closeness of our Saviour. Let me finish. Those last couple of verses that Quincy read to us. Verse 26 and 28, 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
after all we've said about the necessity of Jesus having to die, after all we've just been talking about of of the, the pressure, the cost of following Jesus, and in that understanding the cost involved in being Jesus and going to the cross for us, was Jesus maybe toying with the idea of not going through with it? Had he come to the edge and and just looked over the edge and thought, I don't know whether I can do this. I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus begins these verses by saying, now my soul is troubled. Jesus here is describing what he's going to go through for us. He says, the hour has come. He knows the time, the point in his life to which he's been working all his life has now come. And he knows that he is about to face an unspeakable ordeal. We read about later, just a few days later in the Garden of Gethsemane and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Having come to the edge, having looked into that precipice of the cross and all that was involved, having faced the reality of what was to come, Jesus declared his determination to follow through. It was for this reason I came to this hour. My friend, he did that for you. And for me. Isn't that remarkable? He did that for us. He went to the edge. He looked over and he said, I will follow through. Because the only way, that's the only way that I can provide salvation for those Greeks, for those disciples, for us. If he went to the edge, went over the edge, and died in our place. He did that so that we could follow him. Another joy and delight that comes in that. My friend, have you trusted Jesus? Have you recognised that you must let go of whatever holds you back from knowing that full salvation? And are you following Jesus? Don't ever think that I follow Jesus perfectly. I really don't. I let him down time and time again. But I also know that only when I follow him Can I know that fellowship with the Father and with the Son by the Holy Spirit?